Welcome to the Revolution and Ideology podcast. I am Jared. I'm Nick. And uh, we are very fortunate today because we have a guest, another guest. Um, in this case, I will let Dante introduce yourself. Who are you? What are you about? <laughs> Hi, what's up, everybody? I'm Dante. Um, I, you know, I go to UCCS and uh, I'm interested in just like, you know, learning and all that good stuff. You know what I mean? Dante comes to us because he... Uh, <laughs> He brought us an interesting idea, um, given he knows what you know what we're about, and he's uh, listened to the podcast, seen what we research. He's also and, been in our classes. He's yeah. taken my intro to sociology class, my early yeah, our resistance revolution class, and our stateless class. Uh, so it's weird because I, I never took y'all resistance revolution. I was in there a lot. Okay, that's right. <laughs> I just popped in. Ideology, though. You took ideology that. Ideology okay. and stateless, yep. Yeah. Were you in that 1510, that early U.S. history, too? Yeah. Yeah, that class. Yep. All right, anyway, so so Dante's here, and uh, and he came to us with this interesting concept is that he found on his own that he was researching, and it was this connection between the ancient philosophy, uh, Taoism, and the modern more modern philosophy of anarchism and it's it's not that maybe myself or nick hadn't been aware of it but we just we'd never explored it really you know we'd we'd been looking at it through different lenses but not necessarily this taoist one and me being a huge huge fan of the tao and and studying the tao you know i tend to read it every once in a while when i'm you know need to feel a certain way i and i'd definitely interested in anarchism we thought well why have we never done this and it's great that dante was able to introduce us to this so real quick before we even get started dante what what was your connection like why why did you why did this speak to you so this spoke to me because uh before i even came to college or anything before i was even like in college uh i read the Tao um because like uh I had like a lot of mental health issues and stuff like that. So it kind of helped me get through like some rough patches and stuff like that. And then I just uh, revisited it like recently. And then I'm, I was thinking like, it's kind of anarchist in uh, a sense. And I was like, hmm, let me just type in like that was anarchism and it popped up. And I was just like, what? And so, <laughs> so then I just started doing a whole bunch of research. And I was, and that's when I told y'all about it because I was so excited about it. So yeah, we felt like we needed to throw this into the Revolution and Ideology po- podcast, especially with its emphasis on exploring statelessness, and uh, and that's what we're going to do. So um, essentially, what we're also going to try and frame here is here. I'll explain this real quickly. This is going to be basically a two-part episode. Uh, this first episode is going to emphasize more the history of Taoism as kind of a standalone ideology that's not an ideology that's like the great irony of Taoism, but that's kind of one of its connections to anarchism anarchism also being an ideology that in many ways and shapes and forms stands against the notions of ideology and that's why i think they go so well together but we are going to focus mostly on kind of historical Taoism today to set the stage for dante to bring us his research in the second episode on what he's found connecting Taoism with anarchism in that spirit, what I'm hoping to frame right now is if we go back in time, this Taoist resistance, this social movement as a way to challenge the various institutions of its era back in the 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th century BCE in ancient China. Of course, this is where it's born. The reason we're going to talk about this is we're going to get just a hair of revolutionary theory from Nick here 
on how Taoism can be what is sometimes called a subjectivist revolution or a redemptive social movement. And before I move any further and give this historical context, I want Nick to explain what I mean by a subjectivist revolution or redemptive social movement. Okay, so I highly suggest that if you're super interested in this part of what we're talking about, you can go back to, we have videos on our YouTube channel, and we did an episode, I basically took the audio of those videos and put them into a short episode that are the four types of social movement and what is a revolution. Um, so you can get a lot more information on that because we're just going to skim it right here. It's not super crucial. But um, like Jared said, in fact, this is just coincidence because I don't know if it was about a month ago or something, but we were talking about what episodes we wanted to do on the podcast coming up. And Jared said he wanted to start exploring more theory and just talking about subjectivist revolution, which is revolution at the individual level, changing yourself basically internally and exploring that. So the Tao obviously is right in line with that. So it's just good that we're talking about that uh, now. Now let's talk about the redemptive uh, social movement. There are four types of social movement that I'll go through just super quickly. The first one is alterative which seeks partial individual change. Think of the word alter. It seeks to alter someone's behavior. Um, then we have reformative, which is a reform movement. It seeks to change something at the social level. So like civil rights, the women's suffrage movement, etc. Anything that seeks to reform the current system is reformative. Then we have transformative, which is after total social change. So this is like a revolution as a transformative social movement. What we want to focus on today, though, when we're putting in Tao in the context of anarchism and talking about subjectivist social change, is the redemptive type of social movement, which seeks a total change in individuals. Um, this, actually, If you're curious, this comes from anthropologist David Aberley uh, in his work in the 1960s titled The Peyote Religion Among the Navajo. Um, and so he just has a quick quote here. He says uh, that redemptive efforts quote, aim at a total change in individuals. The defining characteristic is the search for a new inner state, end quote. So that's basically where we're going to live in the next two episodes, is exploring this sort of inner change and how that relates to the Tao specifically, but then anarchism in our next episode and so on. Perfect. Um, well, without really further ado, let's just kick off this historical context. I'm the history guy, so I'm the one that likes this part. Everybody else usually tunes out, but... You take a nap real fast. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like we can't talk, you know, obviously, a historical idealism unless we understand historical materialism, and that's where the history plays a role. So I'm not going to do the entire history of ancient China. That that That's not for me to do, and, and I'm not even necessarily... That's not one of my specialties anyway, but I am going to give, like, a super brief overview of the time period in which this philosophy really comes into being. Um, long story short, dynastic China had already existed through a couple of, of major dynasties, the Xia dynasty and the Shang dynasty, and I'm not going to spend any time on those. Um, there are other historians that do an excellent job of explaining those. Um, the Shang dynasty, the last one I referenced, would eventually be overthrown, though, by one of its subsidiary dynasties, the Zhou dynasty. And there is both a Western and Eastern Zhou dynasty Regardless of which one I'm talking about, and I guess in this case I'm focusing mostly on the Western since that's kind of the first one, a new thing is established in dynastic China. It's this notion of the mandate of heaven, essentially articulating the idea that when a governing body has lost its – honestly, when it's just doing a piss-poor job, 
it essentially has lost the mandate of heaven, i.e. the heavens, the gods, the ancestors, most importantly, are no longer shining down upon the state. And it is almost like the duty of the people to change that dynasty. And that was kind of the rationalization of the Zhou, because a lot of people were questioning the overthrow of the Shang dynasty had been around for a long time. Well, the Zhou dynasty basically said uh, they lost the mandate of heaven. We now have the mandate of heaven, and we're going to do things a certain way. And that certain way ends up being, again, ancient, in this case, Chinese statecraft, which, again, we have to understand the formation of the state for us to talk about these philosophies like Taoism that might challenge its notion. Um, this idea is that the kings were literally the sons of heaven, and it ties back to the historical relevance of ancestors that already existed in uh, the Chinese narrative at that moment in time. It is then articulated through ancient sayings. And again, this is important because the Tao itself will eventually become a collection of sayings. And those those sayings come through uh, in the Book of Changes or the I Ching, uh, which is a verification that nothing, these changes, that nothing is random. Nothing is random. All things are actually dictated by a divine will. Now again, I'm not talking about the Tao yet. But what I want to do is set the stage for some of the philosophies that will kind of seem similar and also in some cases seem contrasting when we get to the Tao. But I want to stress that this philosophy, this idea that nothing is actually uh, uh, random and that everything is dictated by divine will will play a crucial role uh, moving forward in the Zhou dynasty. It has a foundational impact on Chinese philosophy. This is also the time period that a lot of scholars, and they will they will, and this is where we see a dichotomy between Western and Eastern philosophers about when things started when, and whose timeline are we using, and there's going to be disagreement. So if, if you disagree with my dates or timeframes, I apologize. I tried to synthesize both Western timelines and Eastern timelines, and sometimes they don't necessarily agree. But this is also around the time that notions of yin and yang and balance become very prominent in uh, Chinese philosophy. It's basically this marriage of these, philo these ideals of kun and qian. Yin kind of represents the more, the soft, dark, moist, and cool ideal uh, attached to Kun. It is like the earthly, receptive, um, female principle, whereas Yang is like the hard, the bright, the dry, the warm ideal, and it's attached to Qian, the creative male principle. But both are required for balance, not just on an individual level, but on a societal level. And that's kind of where that Yin and Yang come in. Again, I could spend a lot more time on them, but we'll, we'll actually see them come to fruition a little bit in some of the Taoism anyway. I am stressing, though, that these philosophies do technically predate what we would call the, the, the Tao Te Ching, right? The, the text we're about to read from. Another set of philosophies that, that arguably inform the Tao would come from the Book of, of Songs, which sought to connect feelings of the everyday people during the Zhou period. Um, it's basically – it's like 305 poems that, that describe all aspects of life and how that interplay should work on an individual, a social, and even in a, a, a governing level for – and how the relationship should work in each of those capacities. So the Book of Songs is also a pretty good source if you want a, a window into you know, ancient Chinese thought. Again, I'm not going to necessarily read from it or anything because I want to focus on the Tao, but it is certainly inspirational. Um, all of this eventually though – comes to a crashing halt towards the end of the Eastern Zhou Dynasty, where a series of different states begin to compete. We're now going to talk about the Warring States period, and that takes place between approximately 475 and 221 BCE. 
after the Zhou had moved basically their administration uh, to Luang, turmoil begins and a loose feudal hierarchy um, ends up being compromised by ambitious local leadership. So instead of having like a strong state, the state becomes a little bit fractured into like little micro-feudal states and then competition ensues. The local aristocracy in these regions seeks direct control over their labor resources. They no longer want to have to answer to uh, the Zhou dynasty. Multiple states that fracture off the dynasty eventually kind of coalesce into seven major states, and they all begin to compete for that aforementioned mandate of heaven. Those states are the Yan, the Wei, the Zhao, the Qi, the Chu, the Han, and the Qin. And spoiler alert, it ends up being the Qin that kind of win the day, and hence that's why we have China. But those seven states, it's during this period of competition where a lot of new philosophies come into being. And that's where, that's where we're going to live um, basically for this re rest of this episode. Now, technically, some of these guys that I'll mention, the Confuciuses of the world, um, for example, lived slightly before what I just dated as the Warring States period, but it's their philosophies that become kind of paramount during this Warring States period. Basically, what I want Dante and Nick to both chime in on now is imagining, without me having to describe a lot of it, a Warring States period of seven states, constant chaos, constant conflict, insecurity, warfare. It's, it is. It is chaos. Why would chaos breed philosophical flourishing? That's the question, because what we get out of this time period is the hundred schools of thought, a whole bunch of different people opining on how to fix the current legal, social, spiritual, and political situation of the time. Out of nowhere, hundred schools of thought during chaos. Why does chaos breed that? What are your thoughts, guys? Well, I think you mentioned the materialist conception of history earlier, and from that perspective, the more the more turmoil there is in the material circumstances, the more there will be turmoil and innovation and change and chaos, perhaps, in the ideological sphere as well. Dante? Yeah. <clears throat> um, I think it, people were seeking balance, right? People were seeking some sort of balance, uh, balance because of this thing that they observed. So it was like, how can we counteract all of this stuff that's going on? And I feel like a lot of these people were like philosophizing about all of these types of things to create, um, to fill a void that was missing. I like that. Fill a void is definitely going to be apt when we start talking about the Tao for sure. That was good. Um, I mean, to give examples of these types of philosophies that are circling around this time, I mean, this is the time when we get one of the most famous military books of all time. The Art of War is written by, by Sun Tzu or Sun Z, depending on pronunciation. Um, and I guess I'll pause right here. This is going to be like my little disclaimer that I forgot at the beginning. I do not – none of us are Mandarin speakers, nor are we any other ancient Chinese dialect speakers. So some of our pronunciations are going to be off – and for that, we apologize. We're pretty good at speaking some languages, but this is not going to be one of them. I've studied no, no, none of the Chinese dialects. So my, apologize, my apologies if I mispronounce anything. But The Art of War, uh, I mean, it's 13 chapters basically dedicated to war, both material and ideal war. 
and uh, I don't think I really need to describe the art of war to most Westerners, which is what I assume our audience is. It's one of the more famous texts from this time period. Um, in fact, uh, to the best of my knowledge, I think the Marines still read it in boot camp. I might be correct. I don't know if I'm correct or incorrect on that one. But it's popular enough to where it needs no explanation. As far as its context goes, well, it's the Warring States period, and this is a gentleman who is speaking about how to win war. So it's natural that the Warring States period would produce this work. But I do want to move to the rise in Confucian ideals during this time. See, Confucius dates back as far as 551 BC, which is a century or so before this Warring State period. And his compilation of works eventually comes to be known as the Analects. See, Confucius was a traveling teacher, and essentially what he was seeking, his audience was not necessarily individual people. It was, it was leaders. It was rulers. That, that, that's who he was trying to gain audience with. And he came up with these ideas that eventually come to fruition in his notion of just rule and the gentlemanly manner. Basically, he was seeking to get leaders to avoid pettiness, to learn self-discipline, to understand that their ability to rule is tied to their knowledge and scholarship, and this would lead to their morality. The intelligent example would spread the ideals of Confucianism. His ultimate aims he defined as basically Li, which was propriety, Ren, which was benevolent compassion, and Dei, which was virtue. All of these things combined can develop a good or a gentlemanly Wen, which means culture. A lot of this was tied, though, to legalism and tradition, which is one of the critiques like Taoist philosophers will have with this, and it is about social control not individual liberty. It is about manufacturing a better way to run a state. But well, I think it's, it's key to like the things you just mentioned. They're not about how to change the internal being. They're about how to create a society through control that results in that way of existing, which is a key difference. Yeah, Confucianism is not some sort of spiritual enlightenment measure. Mm -hmm. It is about how to make the state run smoother and to be more quote-unquote, moral or ethical in its dealings with its subjects. What do you think, Dante? Yeah, I, I, would, I would totally agree. I think it's pretty much like trying to create this like uh, standard of like social order or something like that. Mm -hmm. I would totally agree with that. Well, and that social order even comes through like at the family level. One of my favorite things to talk about from this time period is this idea of filial piety. Now, it's not necessarily born in China. Um, you can see it in the Roman Empire or, or the, uh, the, the Gupta Empire in India as another example. But this idea that you basically have to maintain balance in every relationship in your life. And that's what filial piety is, that in every relationship you either serve as a superior or a subordinate. And as long as that balance is maintained, then society will flourish. But that's the point. When you have a superior subordinate relationship and everything, that is manufacture of a state, even at a family level. And then, of course, it, you know, you can scale it all the way on up to a full-blown dynasty if you so need to. But essentially what I'm saying here is that in this case, like obviously sons serve fathers and fathers lead and teach sons and protect them. Or in this case, it was a patriarchal society. So husbands technically are superior to their wives. Their wives' role is to serve them and produce offspring and so on and so forth, while the men are meant to lead, guide, and protect. It's, it is not a philosophy based on equality. It is anything but a, a philosophy based on equality. It's a philosophy that means to create stability, though. What do you think? Yeah, no, for sure. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of 
It's interesting that I haven't read more about the concept of filial piety in anarchist literature because there's all kinds of discussions about abolishing the family and like and so on, but none of them actually point back to this that I've seen anyway, like this philosophy, which I think is kind of interesting. Well, and in Western thought, since anarchism, whatever Westerners tend to claim it, which we're going to challenge obviously with this 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 Taoist uh, series of episodes, but they can trace filial piety directly back to the Roman Empire. And you've heard me do this lecture numerous times when Caesar Augustus basically mandates the pater familia, like this is the way that the Roman Empire is going to work. We're going to create a bunch of little focus on the families, and that's the way the Roman Empire is going to be like a big family, and I'm daddy, right? Like that's how that works. What are you going to say, Dante? No, I was about to say like I – well, what I've read anyway was that filial uh, piety is more so like like you say, like having this co- like connection with your family, but in not a hierarchical way. The way I, I read it, I, I don't know if that's correct, but I read that it was just like like sharing and being generous to your family and others around you in a, in a way that's like symbiotic. Depends on how we define symbiosis. My science, our scientists listeners define- know there's different forms of symbiosis, right. but in this case, yes, like the, it doesn't mean the husband comes home and like beats everybody's ass and tells them what to do, but he is in charge. There are no questions, and as long as he is serving him serving his family as in a gentlemanly and a moral manner with balance then that's how filial piety works but he's still calling the shots there are still superiors and subordinates yeah the way jared explained it earlier was like exactly that that the husband's coming home and like put laying down the law but it's more of it's less about the hierarchy it's more about fulfilling your role within the family and your position within that hierarchy. It's not like exploitative, like we generally think of hierarchy. It's like the role of the son is to do this. And as long as you do that role, then the whole family will exist in some sort of equilibrium and everyone will be have what they need and etc. But right. it is very much that. stay in your lane as dictated by society. This is not a philosophy of liberation. Okay. That is understand for sure. That. Yeah. yeah. Uh, to give you an example, Confucius says, It is rare for a man who is filial towards his parents and respectful to his elder brothers to go against his superiors. Never has there been a person who doesn't like to go against his superiors and at the same time likes to rebel or cause trouble. A gentleman devotes himself to basics or core values. Once the core values or basics are established, the principles and actions of government and behavior will grow from there. The basics are be filial towards one's parents and respectful to one's elder brothers key right there brothers not sisters right like that's but we can see like he's not saying go be jerks to everybody because you're in a position of power patriarchs of your families but he is saying like you he is saying know your role stay in your lane um this would spread throughout the warring states period by later disciples of confucius after he had passed um like mencius and uh shunzi so they would become the philosophers that spread confucianism but I don't want to spend all this time on Confucianism. Just I wanted to lay it out in super brief, super briefly, so that we can kind of talk about uh, the Tao here in a second. But before we get to the Tao, there's other competing uh, philosophies that I want to touch on. One of them that kind of to- ends up being uh, almost adopted. It really is the one that's adopted by the government towards the end. Is called legalism towards the end of the Warring States period, and that's really established by a philosopher named Han Feizi. And he was a former Confucian disciple who saw that the teachings of Confucius, at least the ones that he had learned through Shunzi, were naive. That human goodness must be conditioned through heavy-handed use of law and procedure. 
Humans are inherently bad and must be suppressed to create order. And just rule, as Confucius saw it, would only be possible through doctrine. No leader knowledge, growth, or compassion would be able to establish just rule without a super legal state. The reason Han Feizi and some of his other philosophers are interesting in this capacity, well, and eventually they use this to seize power, right? After the Qin unification, they established the Han dynasty based on legalism, and the Han dynasty is one of the most important dynasties in all of Chinese history. So legalism does, does kind of win the day towards the end of this. But when we think about legalism in terms of what it means for the individual, which is a lot of what Taoism is going to focus on, what are your thoughts in my overly super, super simplistic uh, de- defining? Well, I want to start by saying just how influential legalism is today, even in the United States. I think it's one of like, we don't call it that or really think of it in those terms, but it dominates so much of American society. It's just ridiculous, like for sure. Well, and again, it's not purely Chinese. Like we would use the term if we want to pick on the ancient Greeks, draconian. It's very draconian. If we want to pick on the middle-aged Europeans, we would say Machiavellian. Um, so like th- there are definitely terms for this in the Western vernacular. What were you going to say, Dante? No, I, I was going to say I've, I really don't really know too much about that. Like, well, obviously besides our way of it, but like I don't really know too much about legalism to like really chime into it. Like, it's, it's one of those hundred schools of thought. Right. Yeah. yeah. Basically, what he was saying is like, look, you're trying all these things, Hanfezi and his followers, his his disciples. None of that is working. We need to just put a stamp on people. Like they must be controlled. And in Western philosophy, that's kind of we can see that in Western philosophy, in in especially like the Judeo Christian context, with original sin, essentially assuming that people are negative and that they need some sort of redemptive process to uh, to alleviate their sins or whatever it is. So it's not unique to Chinese philosophy. We definitely have it here in the West. What I would argue, and this was going to piss off some listeners, is that when you start from the point of departure in human nature that we are bad and we need to be controlled or saved in some regard, you're you're establishing a state right there. You're a state-based ideology right there. You are looking to control people. We think, Nick. No, I think, yeah. The, if that's your point of departure, then the next step is oppression. And that's the only thing that could be next. That's right. it. Yep. All right. Control, yeah. Uh, enough history. Let's start talking Tao. I, 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 if we don't do it now, we'll never get to it. And I will just go on and on about the uh, history of China during this time. So let's just get into it. One of these other um, schools of thought, the one that we're going to be now focusing on that comes out during the Warring States period or just before the Warring States period, depending on your source. And again, they all differ on when this becomes a thing. The other thing they differ on before I dig into it is the author or the writer or the originator of the Tao. Um, Lao Tzu, Lao Tzu, Lao Tzu, three different pronunciations. I've heard them all. I, well, I guess I'll just use whatever one pops in my mind when I say his name coming up for the, the rest of the episode. Did this individual write the or compile the entire Tao Te Ching? The answer is probably not. Most historians, Western and Eastern, agree on this. It is a compilation of not just like his sayings, and what he he believed, but likely disciples and other contributors over the years throughout the Warring States period. Um, I don't I don't know. I haven't run across any recent or modern sources that now attribute the whole thing to this person, and some even debate whether this person Lao Tzu ha, even existed. That I I disagree with. I, I he was a person. Um, how much of this this work is originally his? That's debatable, but it doesn't matter. 
the philosophies there. Like, I guess I am curious before we dig in, why do you think there is so much debate and why do people even care if this dude A existed and B, how much of it he wrote? Why is that something that people even care about? And honestly, it's mostly Western scholars that care about this. Well, I think that actually talks a lot about our Western lens and how we view history and the fact that we literally like cannot handle not having a single person to attribute some work to because our history is centered on the individual and their efforts and their thoughts and what they did as a person rather than like the social context or the material milieu or whatever, right? Like we don't, in the West, it's not very common, at least traditionally, that we do like the genealogical approach to history. We need a person that we can try to like create that we can attribute things to. Great man theory. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we, we need this person that we can like uh, uh, model ourselves after. You know what I mean? We need that for some unknown reason. Instead of just being like, like, forget about the person. Like, what did the person say? I feel like that's the most important thing of what they say and what they do and stuff like that. I like the what they do the best, but yes, absolutely. So regardless of if this is all of Lao Tzu's words or Lao Tzu and some others, or maybe not Lao Tzu at all, doesn't matter. We're, we're going with it. Before we go into individual sayings within the Tao Te Ching, um, I want to talk about just like a general overview, just so our listeners have an understanding. First and foremost, this is a philosophy. I, I struggle to call it a full-blown religion. It, if it is, it's an anti-religion because there is no one dogmatic way to to engage with Taoism, to this philosophy, this way of life. Whereas, again, in our more traditional religions, whether they're Hinduism or Christianity or Islam or Judaism, they're dogmatic. I, sorry, again, if that's offensive, but there is like a written set of codes and rules and ways of doing things. They're dogmatic, and they are meant to exert control over individual followers. The Tao is the opposite. It is meant to liberate the individual at the cost, arguably, of the control of state institutions or individual leaders. So I, I won't call it a religion because religion is meant to control. So I will call it a philosophy or a uh, one of our translators that, that translated the Tao calls it a guiding principle. Um, I like those terms a little bit better. I think it's similar to Buddhism, like in that respect, like very, very, not very often do you hear people talk about like the Buddhist religion. Like that's not a thing. I hear it really. quite a bit. Um, well, I hear people talk. I hear people use that term. I just think that they're wrong. Yes, they are wrong. But, <laughs> but here's the thing. Buddhism did become kind of religious in its practice in Southeast Asia. I mean, you have the big idols and things like that. We don't – Taoism didn't go that route. That's true. Which is interesting. If, if we had a better historian from this specific time period, because this is not my specialty, uh, but we could probably find out why Buddhism became more quote-unquote religious and Taoism remained more philosophical. That, that would be actually pretty cool, and maybe I'll research that myself one of these days, but whatever. That's not right now. Okay. It is also non-theistic. There is no specific god or gods – there are there's a spiritual nature to Taoism, but there is no like one god. In fact, the idea of even having a god would contra would be completely would contrast the philosophy right there. It'd be like saying, "Well, we'll get into this when we get to the language section." But merely calling something God makes that thing not God. That's what a Taoist would say. You've placed this all-knowing, all-omniscient, omnipresent being into a box for humans to understand when that was never the case. And thus you took all of God's godlike qualities away from God. That's, I know that's confusing the way I said that, but that's what a Taoist would say about a God. What do you think? No, I think, yeah, I think 
put it in more modern language, I think it's something like a reduction. It's too reductionist to like even make sense, right? Like we can't just, like you said, take this omniscient, like being omnipotent, et cetera, and give them a name. Like it's impossible. It's not possible. Right. Which is definitely much more Eastern in context because even, even a Western religion like Islam is still very vague on Allah, much more vague than the Judeo-Christian version of Allah or Yahweh or God. Uh, I mean, like I said, they even humanized him at one point and, and gave him, you know, blonde hair and blue eyes and stuff. That's, that's how far they went. He didn't have and... blonde hair and blue eyes? What? Huh? No. <laughs> no, no, no. Anyway, um, I, now I've lost my train of thought. I was thinking about the uh, the Boondocks episode where where he was talking about who Jesus really was, but it, that's that's neither here nor there. Let's let's get back on track here. Taoism, non theistic, no specific god. It doesn't mean there's no spiritual essence. That's that's not what I'm saying. But it, there is no specific god as we would define it here in the Western world. It focuses on larger abstract notions of thought, of language, and of action through often intentionally vague metaphorical assertions the reason it is intentionally vague the reason it's not a, a linear narrative like uh judaism christianity or islam is because it wants the learner or the receiver of this information to garner their own agency and make their own interpretations and make their applications individual you see this is where the subjectivist revolution comes in or the uh redemptive form of social change comes in in that Taoists during this time period were looking to change the individual and have a triple trickle up effect of their social movement that if you revolutionize the individual and liberate that individual from state sanctioned narratives and storytelling and ideologies, then that will have an effect going up the proverbial state pyramid. What do you think of that? Yeah, I think it's like, you know, revolution from the bottom, except and started Instead of starting with the masses, it starts with one individual. You know what I mean? And and it even speaks about like uh, uh, these people that are, are that are in high positions, kind of going to the bottom to like fill it out, see what's going on at the bottom, so then you can like liberate everybody. You know what I mean? Instead of having this like stratification and hierarchy. Yeah, yeah, I love I love the Tao. It has a lot in common with like Sufism and stuff too, which we're going to be doing an episode uh, coming up on. Uh, relatively shortly as we stay with this kind of like subjectivist revolutionary process here. Anyway, okay, as we keep moving here, the inter interpersonal interpretation as self was the only possible way to be and be in all caps, like be, you need to be. It is the art of existence. Its core aims are humility, compassion, and moderation in as far as the individual is concerned. And again, in theory, those values will work their way up through society, or in Dante's example, some of the leaders that adopt Taoism will then take themselves down off of their pegs or their thrones and come live humble, compassionate, and moderate lives. That's kind of part of the process of the Tao. Um, one of the cool things that, that the Tao shares with another belief besides Sufism is with the aforementioned Buddhism. One of the things that is often seen, especially when we get to the Tao's thoughts on um, on inner inner understanding of oneself is to avoid desire and at times, at times, not always, but at times embrace ignorance. So avoiding desire is one of the core aspects of Buddhism, right? Like we know that I'm not, I'm willing to bet even our listeners know that. Um, wow. I even said, even like I was like, a, like that's yeah. mean. What a, even our dumb, stupid <laughs> listeners probably know that. What an asshole. 
Oh, boy. Anyway, my apologies to everybody, um, but I'm uh, apparently an elitist. No, anyway. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Back to the story. But everyone kind of knows that that's one of the main things that you do in Buddhism is avoid um, desire. The one thing, though, that I think is interesting, and this is a direct affront to legalists, to Confucius, um, and to other various philosophers, even, even the Sun Tzu's of the world at the time, Embrace ignorance. Why would anyone want to embrace ignorance? What a weird thing. Especially, again, three people here that are super into education. Dante's a future educator, right? Like, why would that be a thing? I, I, I love, first of all, I love that. I love embracing ignorance because if you cannot embrace that you're ignorant, you are not ready to learn. I feel like. Oh, hey, I like yeah, that. I because, like that. because then, and then if you, if you feel like you know everything, then you can't learn from other people and from just not even people, just like just living your life. So I feel like I love embrace the ignorance because it helps you learn. It, it, it you're self-reflective enough to be like, let me go out and learn something new. I love it. I love. It. I love it. Yeah, and I think it's important in the context of the Tao. Like I'm sure we're gonna get to some of this, but the, it says like you know, yeah, I think it's just key that this if you can't admit that you're ignorant of things whatever that is then you can't at all work on improving yourself that's impossible right so you have to embrace ignorance so that you can go through that process and that journey which is never ending but is it okay to be ignorant just to be ignorant without a goal the reason i'm asking this is because the next section here that, that i'm doing the glossy before we actually dig into the doubt is the art of inaction no i think that I mean, my answer is no. I don't know if that's correct or not. People can disagree if they want, but I think just being ignorant for ignorance sake is not acceptable. You have to, it's like you're doing this at the same time, right? You're recognizing and admitting your ignorance while you are going through the process of minimizing that ignorance. You'll never eradicate it fully, but the goal should be to minimize and work on yourself, improve yourself, be self-reflective, like Dante said, to try to minimize that ignorance as much as possible. And I would totally agree with that. And I feel like the dial kind of speaks because it's very contradictory. It's very contradictory because it's like you have to acknowledge that you're ignorant so that you can gain some sense of like wisdom. And then it's, it's, a pro it's always a process is what I'm pretty much want to get to. It's a process of always learning and then knowing that you don't know everything. So then you're keeping that process of finding wisdom and learning and stuff like well, that. Well, and the more that you learn, the more you realize how much you don't know. And so it's just never ending, right? right? Yeah. And knowing is half the battle. Um, <laughs> but, but really Our listeners are too young to know that. Yeah, they are. But, but now you're talking down to them. <laughs> but in reality, I'm going to uh, be the devil's advocate here. I would argue that the ignorance should in some parts of the Tao, and Dante's right, it's contradictory in many places, should be part of the aim. That this constant need to know and to learn and to grow is in and itself a desire. It might not be the materialist desire purported by like a capitalism or something, which is gross, but it is still a desire, a desire that in some cases is insatiable, and that insatiability can compromise the balance of one's inner self. What do you think? I think, yes. <laughs> I think yes, but I feel like if you like follow in, in the Tao, it says like if you follow the way, like you don't have a desire to want to learn, you just do it. Okay. I so like that. you know what I mean? So that's, it's that's just very it's just the, you to say. Yeah, it's like just that. you just do it. So it's not like I'm seeking it. I'm just as a result of me living, 
I'm learning. Yeah, I think it's less like, like, I mean, we just did an episode on narcotizing dysfunction, right? It's less about fulfilling the unfillable void with knowledge and more about just following the way. And as a result of that, you have this relationship with your ignorance, admitting it and being fulfilled and et cetera along the way. So a Taoist would say we're all correct because that's the point of the Tao. Mm -hmm. So let's keep going. The next part, as I had already previewed, is the art of inaction and of both going with and being the flow. How can you both just be the go with the flow person and then also be the flow person? How can you do both of those things? So everyone's favorite example is a like an 80s book, an early 80s book written here for, for Westerners who couldn't understand Chinese philosophy. And it's a super good book. It really is actually. So I'm not like mocking it. It's called The Tao of Pooh. And, and I like to reference it because it is. It's a good read for Westerners to try and understand these somewhat vague and whatever uh, Eastern philosophies. But long story short, the, the author whose name is escaping me right this second for some reason basically gives us the character of Winnie the Pooh who needs no description for our audience. Winnie the Pooh is a Taoist in his description. Think about how Winnie the Pooh conducts himself. How is it possible that this 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 animated cartoon bear who is just about hanging out and having a good time with his friends and basically living in that moment without any specific real aim or goal, like long term? Yeah, sometimes he wants that pot of honey, but like there's no... He's not on the hamster wheel like the rest of us. So there's no existential meaning. Like he's just in the moment, in the present, all the time. Is someone Googling that author's name for me right now? No, I'll put it in the show notes. Okay. We'll, we'll link to it. Anyway, it's a super good book. And, and, and like I said, sometimes I usually am not fond of when Westerners try and take something from another place and then like commodify it. But but I don't believe that was this person's goal. Um, and, and it is a good read. So I, I do recommend that for like kind of a, a nice understanding. Anyway, I want to keep moving. One of the things that comes out through the Tao is this notion of qi, and qi becomes the unifying principle of nature. Now, again, scholars debate whether qi predates or postdates the actual Tao Te Ching. It does not matter. Qi is a thing that is discussed in the Tao, so we're going to discuss it. It is that unifying principle of nature, interchangeability of energy and matter. It is understood through simplicity, mediation, as well as meditation and breathing. Importantly, engaging qi to transcend the material world is key, and it helps us in gaining understanding, which is most often comprised or, compro or is comprised by our own constructs of the material world, and those constructs are all socialized. So this is a way for us to challenge our socialization and get back into ourselves to really understand and contemplate qi. Again, this kind of like this 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 bridge between the um, energy and matter. This, What do you guys think of that? Ooh, that's a big debate, right? This is the key between the idealist and the materialist yep. sort of social change and revolution. It's do we find our true selves through action in the streets or do we find our true selves by through meditation and isolation perhaps and looking inwardly? There's no right answer here. I mean, we could do this till we're blue in the face. Yeah. And I, I would also just to like uh, just to caveat off of that is just like I think it's a little bit of both, right? Like it's that like it's going again back to that balance. Like you need a little bit of both of the or a lot of I don't know. You need both of those things in order to realize certain things that you want to see in, in the world. So I feel like it's a little bit of both. I mean that's a pretty good Taoist answer because that's what the Taoist <laughs> would say, right? We have to do both at the same time 
concurrently, right? It's this always already type thing. Yeah. So now uh, in the interest of keeping things moving, we're going to go right to the source itself. And I'm going to just, we're, we, there's no way we have time to read every saying in this, this wonderful book. Um, but we are going to pick and choose a couple from each of like the kind of like sections that are, at least in my translation, are broken up by topic. Like, so this first section is, is broken up by the, by the Taoist ver, uh, understanding of language and guidance. Now, caveat here. We all three, all three of us have a different translation of the Tao, and that's one of the, the inter- interesting things that comes when you are translating um, ancient uh, Chinese texts. So unfortunately for these other two, they're going to have to kind of – since you know I'm reading here, they're going to have to stay caught up with me. Um, so what I am going to read is the first saying in my translation. So why don't we say what translations oh, we yeah, have? Yeah, so yeah. you're reading from – I'm reading from a translation by Stephen Hodge from 2002 actually. Okay, and then I have a translation by Victor H. Mayer and it has an introduction by Houston Smith if you want to look for that. Dante's is straight up just a PDF he found on the internet that doesn't actually even have authorship, which is probably what we all should have done, use that one. But So the point is you're going to be hearing a lot of flipping of pages when Jared gives us a chapter number because we're going to look through and so we can all look in our versions to follow along. And that doesn't even mean like like all of these are actually like really good ones because we have cross-checked like even Dante's non-authored one with ours and the sayings are close enough to where like again these these the, the major differences in words are not – they're not changing the meaning of the Tao whatsoever. It's a really good version as well. Um, okay, so I'm going to start with saying number one. It is just – it is numbered one. It is the first saying, so I'm assuming it's the first saying in all three of our versions. Technically not because mine starts with – mine's in a different order, but that's okay. I got it. Any Tao given by language is not a constant Tao. Any labeling given by words is not constant labeling. Absence means the beginning of the universe. Presence names the matrix of all things. Therefore, treat absence as constant if you desire to view its wonders. Treat presence as constant if you desire to view its manifestations. These two emerge in union but are named differently. Their union speaks of mystery, mystery upon mystery, the gateway to a whole mass of wonders. Okay, I want to read mine just the first sentence because mine's different and I like mine also. It says, the ways that can be walked are not the eternal way. The names that can be named are not the eternal name. I think I like that one a little better, honestly. Yeah, me too. I think I like that one better. What's your say, Dante? Uh, So mine is very (laughs) long-winded. It says, uh, Tao that can be spoken is not the constant Tao. The name... That can be named is not the constant name. Nameless is the origin of heaven and earth. The name is the mother of all things. Thus, the constant void enables one to observe the true essence. The constant being enables one to see the outward manifestations. These two compared from uh, the same origin. But when the essence is manifested, it has a different name. This name uh, is called the profound mystery as profound the mystery as it can be it is the gate to the essence of all life wow that's a long-winded yeah, version that's yeah. a long-winded. <laughs> and we're not gonna don't worry listeners we're not gonna do this for all of them but it is interesting to note that like all three of those are different translations but if you were listening carefully they're all saying the 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 there's the same sentiment in all three of them what is that sentiment that's what i want to talk about what the hell is Taoism? I think it goes straight into back to what we were talking about with the naming of God. 
that we can't pos- the second you put a label on this omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent being, it's just impossible. You can't reduce it to a label. The same is true for the Tao. The Tao that can be named is not the eternal Tao. You can't possibly reduce that to the the limitings of the, any human language. It's not possible. Yeah, I, I would I would totally agree. Is it like like the the Tao that is named loses its profundity in in its entirety? Like it, it's so profound that once you name it, it loses its meaning in in a sense. And it actually it goes like. This relates so much to so much of human life that like, it just like, I think about this a lot and it blows my mind because I like, I love Foucault's book on the order of things and the idea that once we create ontologies, we're, it's so limiting that we're losing the meaning of human life and of animal life and like of all life and the universe and et cetera. And I've actually been thinking about this a lot lately. Um, yeah, I love it. I love it because I, my mental space is in that right now. In fact, I, yeah. Yeah, I'm there. I've been on this for a long time, so we won't do that. <laughs> so I'm not going to make them look up these next two sayings because they're actually spread out, but these are what my translator also attributed to that. This saying is technically he, – he has labeled 32C and the other one is 78B, but they're short ones. Related to what Nick just said, when we begin to regulate, there is naming. But when there has been naming, we should also know how to stop. Only by knowing when to stop can we avoid danger. In short, like the minute, like the when we regulate, when we want to start to control and own and exploit things, that's when we start naming them. No, I straight up read that passage last night in mine as I was finishing this up and like highlighted the shit out of it yeah. because it's exactly the same thing. Oh, you thing. found that one? 32? Yeah. Okay, sweet. Yeah. 78B is like one line in mine. It says, rectified language seems like it's opposite. That's it rectified language seems like it's opposite which basically means like this 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 like very advanced or whatever language like like we talked about is is the opposite the more the well i mean we, everything loses its essence the more specific we get what do you think no yeah i love it i think like i live in this world a little bit in sociology thinking about this kind of stuff like i'm giving a lecture that i'm working on i'm redoing my lecture and intro on gender and sex etc and I was actually reading a bunch of scholarship last night on just the terms queer and trans and et cetera, and how the cis normative society minimizes and subjugates and erases the experiences of those populations by using these buckets of language that are so limiting, like just as one example, you know, mm-hmm. I'm going to go, Oh, do you have something? I'm going to go with the next one. This is technically saying two in theory in both of your versions. This should really drive home the language one because, again, I only want to give like a little taste of each of these or else this episode will be, you know, seven hours long. Everybody in the world recognizes what is beautiful and deems it to be beautiful. And then there's ugliness. Everyone recognizes what is good and deems it to be good. But then there is what is not good. Hence, there is the mutual arising of having and not having. The mutual completion of difficult and easy. The mutual formation of long and short, the mutual leveling of high and low, the mutual harmony of tone and sound, the mutual following of before and after. Because of this, wise instructors abide in their affairs without deeming and engage in instruction that is beyond words. The myriad things arise, but they do not regulate them. They act, but do not cling to them. They fulfill things, but do not dwell on them. But because they do not dwell on them, as a result, they do not leave them. 
Yeah, this reminds me of like the yin and yang, right? As soon as there's one, there is the other, and you can't have one without the other. And going back to the naming, as soon as we name something, then you've limited it, and it's the right, like, and so on. Like, yeah, love yeah. it. I, I've been really into like, uh, like researching like love and relationships uh, recently, and like what it is is pretty much like love. Like you can't name love because it, it's it's so broad of a term. And when we try to like do like romantic love or like family love or like whatever the love might be, it loses some sense of meaning. So I feel like if we just loved people for being people, then we won't see like the lack of it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean that's an excellent example, right? How do you name love? What does that mean? It means something different for everyone, right? Right. People are like. Not that they come to me like I'm some sage or something, but like, you know, you people come to you and they're like, how do I know when I'm in love? And you're like, you, I can't answer that question. Right. No one can answer that for someone else. You know what right. I mean? Yeah. But by labeling it, we're creating its opposite. Yeah. Right? And that's 100%. So, yes, anytime we name something, we're saying and the, the best one is this is good. That means anything that does not fall under this moniker of good must be. And I mean, love is a perfect example. We think of it as being in or out or lo of love. It's a binary thing somehow where like one moment you're in it and you weren't before, like, which makes no sense. And to tie this into what we're going to be talking about leading towards Taoist anarchism, binary paradigms are manufactured by the state. Yep. Okay. I'm going to move on to now a different general topic. Again, giving, I guess, a little bit more uh, uh, precedent to my version of the Tao. It's Stephen Hodge. He's going to talk real quickly about cosmology and the guiding principle. And again, we'll just do a couple quick sayings under cosmology. So this would be like the more spiritual, creative essence of Taoism. So again, he gets done talking, or he, the Tao starts with discussing language and language's limitations and how that impacts the Tao. Now we're going to talk about the Tao itself. So I want to start with, um, Saying number four, the Tao is empty. Using it will not drain it. A silent abyss. It seems like the ancestor of the myriad things. A pellucid depth. It seems just vaguely present. I don't know whose pro progeny it is. It even appears to precede God. That one's pretty short. What's yours say, Nick? This is number four? Yeah. Mine says, The way is empty, yet never refills with use. Bottomless it is, like the forefather of the myriad creatures. It files away sharp points, unravels tangles, diffuses light, mingles with the dust. Submerged it lies, seemingly, seeming barely to subsist. I know not whose child it is, only that it resembles the predecessor of God. That was a lot longer. Uh, but anyway, well, Dante's is probably 20 pages. Yeah, mine is <laughs> the whole page. <laughs> what do you think of that one? What is, so what is the Tao in terms of its like spiritual essence based on just this one short saying? We don't know, I guess is the answer. And the thing that I like about it is that it's really telling us like the origin, right? I know not whose child it is. We don't know where it came from, but the point is that that doesn't matter at all. And the second we tried to figure out where it came from, that would be problematic. Yeah. And I, the only note that I have on that one is just is some type of profound source energy. That's mm -hmm. pretty much what I can just yeah. put that down to. Like, we don't know that it is. It's like some type of something that created everything. Yep. And it's okay not to know. Exactly. That's totally the, okay. that's the yes. best part mm -hmm. is you don't have to know. Sometimes saying, I don't know, and this is that embrace ignorance part, is okay. Well, I think especially people that would like try to follow the Tao, right? If their first question is like, well, I need to know where this came from first, like then you're not following the Tao straight off the out of the gate, right? Like, yeah. 
But then I do want to just say this though. You can feel it though. Mm-hmm. I feel, I, well, for me, I can feel it. I can feel what that might be in my interactions with different people and everything around me. So, I mean, you don't know what it is, but you feel it in like a really meta like sense. <laughs> and I think that's in line with Taoist thinking, right? Like, there's much of in here i think that like you can't know what it is but you might be able to feel spiritually somehow right i think that's kind of the point yeah 42 as you guys flip the pages the Tao generates one one generates two two generates three and three three generates the myriad things the myriad things reject the yin and embrace the yang with the merging of vital energy, and they become balanced. What's yours say, Nick? 42. The way gave birth to unity. Unity gave birth to duality. Duality gave birth to trinity. Trinity gave birth to the myriad creatures. The myriad creatures bear yin on their backs and embrace yang in their bosoms. They neutralize these vapors and thereby achieve harmony. That which all under heaven hate most is to be orphaned, destitute, and hapless. Yet kings and dukes call themselves thus. Things may be diminished by being increased, and increased by being diminished. Therefore, that which people teach after deliberation also teach people. Therefore, the tyrant does not die a natural death. I take this as my mentor. There's a lot of extra on that one. Yeah. I just kind of want to focus on the, the Tao's emphasis here of yang over yin. Mm-hmm. But what's your, is your similar? Ooh, we don't want to read mine. Mine is very long. Okay, it's, wow. it's very long. But it's very similar. It, it mm-hmm. talks about yin and yang a lot in it. The one thing I have with saying 10 that, 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 that kind of struck me is this embrace of the kind of masculine creative principle over the receptive feminine principle. I, I kind of think that's it's it's interesting that the Tao would look at it this way, given that it is kind of liberating in some some ways. In this case, it it seemed a little bit more traditional. But then I look back all the way back at saying number. Although mine isn't like that at all. Mine is both. It says just that sentence: the myriad creatures bear yin on their backs and embrace yang in their bosoms. They neutralize these vapors and thereby achieve harmony. So mine isn't one of or the other. See, mine says merging, but it also says reject yin. I, I just don't. Maybe I just don't like my translation. I, I'll, I'll read like a passage of mine real quick yeah. because it, it kind of talks about that too. It says, "All beings bear the negative physical form, which is represented by yin, and embrace the positive true nature, which is represented by yang. With the union of these two, they arrive at a state of harmony." All right. So ours is more accepting of both. I mean, mine does say they merge into the vital energy and become balanced, but I just, that word right before yin is reject. I just think that's interesting. interesting Well, mine is embrace. Well, yeah. Or bear, I guess. Mine is bear. If so, in a lot of uh, the reading that I did, it talks about like rigidity and like brittleness and like hardness is kind of frowned upon because if you're rigid, hard, and stiff, you're dead. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So for you to be like soft, supple, and like, uh, fluid. I don't. I don't really know a, a, another word to describe that. Uh, you are more able to give yourself to people and are flexible to people's to I people like and things. And I'm gonna now, I guess, let Stephen Hodge defend himself because in his version, he gives his interpretation of why he translated things this way. And so he actually, next to number ten, says this: 
The way that human society work leads to a rejection of the nurturing, self-effacing yin aspect in favor of the harsh, domineering yang aspect. By reducing the influence of the masculine yang aspect and promoting the soft feminine aspect through quasi-medical techniques sought to balance vital energy, which is qi, within the individual, it is possible for anybody to reestablish a harmonious balance both within themselves and externally in their dealings. So when he... He leaves out lines, I guess, is the problem with his translation, which is what confuses me. He is embracing the notion that we need more yin, more of that feminine to create balance. He's just saying in this saying that they, that that essentially that's not what humans have been doing, and that's the problem. Right. No, I like that. Yeah. So I'm glad that he at least explains himself over here, and now it makes more sense and seems more aligned with what your guys' translations say. Um. Anyway, as far as this cosmology is, is concerned – um, I'll go with one more saying here before we move on to another topic. This is my one of my longest ones. It's number 25 for all of you. But this is kind of like the, the creation narrative, and I think that needs to be talked about. There is form arisen from chaos. Born prior to the universe, silent and empty, it stands alone without change. This can be regarded as the mother of the world. Though we do not yet know its name, we can designate it as the Tao. Forced to give it a name, we call it great. Great means the source. The source means going far. Going far means returning. Therefore, the Tao is great. The heavens are great. The earth is great. And human beings are also great. There are four things that are great within the realm, and human beings count as one of them. Human beings emulate the earth. The earth emulates the heavens. And heavens emulate the Tao. And the Tao emulates what is naturally so. That's creation for the Tao. It, so no... mine is key difference. Where you said human, this guy translates it as king, Ooh, which is way different. That's a big difference. So I'll just read the last part where he does okay. that. The way is great. Heaven is great. Earth is great. The king too is great. Though king that has a lowercase k, which is interesting. Within the realm, there are four greats and the king is one among them. Man patterns himself on earth, earth patterns itself on heaven, heaven patterns itself on the way, the way patterns itself on nature. So big difference there, though. I'm curious why the key, the K in king is lowercase. That's kind of interesting. Just real quick, what which one is that? Number 25. 25, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, for, I don't know, I, I just, it, mine is very, like, all of mine is, are very <laughs> long. So I wrote it like, I, I just drew like this little symbol. Uh, it's just like, uh, uh, the heavens, the earth, humans, and I put the Tao in the middle and nature like intersecting all of those things, because I feel like that's, that, that's how I seen it in my mind and how they right. were, were describing it because it is, it's, it's a cycle yet nature flows through all of it and Tao encompasses it. So it's, it's really. So what word does yours use? Is it king or uh, human or man? Man. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I, th I think that the cosmology part of this is that, and I, I think it speaks for itself, is that it is all interconnected. And in terms of, it's not linear, it is not hierarchical, it is almost, there's this egalitarian reciprocity between all of these essences, the earth essence, the creative essence, the human essence, like that, that's how I interpret it. And so there is no start and end like we see in the Western philosophies. Um, there is no binary paradigm as we've already talked about like there is in the Western philosophies. There is an interconnectivity and reciprocity. 
This reminds me a lot, which is... Creativity only exists because of the other three to create them. So it's like mm-hmm. a cycle. Whereas in the other stories that we're used to here in the West, no, there is a God and he creates us and we're in the image and blah, blah, blah. And then hierarchy is born. This reminds me a lot of the concept of panpsychism, which is like the theory within consciousness that all beings have a shared consciousness, which like most people read and it's like, it sounds ridiculous, but it actually has a lot of currency in explaining. I mean, like, let's be real. No one can explain how human beings have consciousness or any living things have consciousness, depending on your opinion. Panpsychism actually has a lot of currency in that uh, arena because no one can explain it. And it does philosophically seem to make sense. This makes me think of, think of that a lot. Um, like you both were saying that the, everything is intertwined. There's a relationship and a reciprocity between man and nature and earth and it's that so on, right? And it's all great. Mm-hmm. Unlike the legalists, it's all yep. bad. Yep. This is all great. Exactly. All right, let's switch to personal training because that's part of this subjectivist redemptive thing. And I think that'll be how we'll close out this episode because Dante will begin leading us with other parts of the Tao that concern society and governance and how those connect to anarchism for the for our next episode. So I want to close out here though. What does it mean for the individual? And so here are a bunch of sayings, not a bunch. We were not doing a bunch. I'll choose again, one, two, three, maybe so we don't overwhelm. On personal training. What does this mean for the individual? Okay. This, for you guys, is saying 24. Those on tiptoe cannot stand steadily. Those who straddle something cannot walk. Those who reveal themselves will not be evident. Those who affirm themselves will not be illustrious. Those who boast of themselves will not have merit. Those who praise themselves will not become elders. From the viewpoint of the Tao, these are called excessive food and useless action. Things seem to disdain them. Therefore, those who have the Tao do not cleave to them. I like it. Mine's pretty similar. It has slight changing in words, but the meaning is basically exactly the same. This is the internal redemptive, right? This is changing the person at an individual level and so on like we've been discussing however yeah. i do want to add like it, it is changing the person at an individual level but it is also I, I feel like uh saying like to not be self-centered mm-hmm. too much to not be so self-centered and to not like hoard things for yourself and make yourself above everybody else that you forget about everybody else yep 52 c you may or may not find it but it's only two lines in mine To pay attention to the small is called discernment. To remain pliant, weakness is called strength. So that's so interesting because mine is an entire page, but I happen to highlight the two sentences that you just read, which is pretty interesting. Pliant weakness is strength. What does that mean? So mine says abiding in softness is called strength. Okay. I think it honestly relates back to the conversation we had a minute ago about yin and yang and the soft and the hard and the, right? By doing one, it's automatically the other, right? It's always both things all of the time if you're following the way, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, Mon says uh, a similar thing. It says, uh, those who abide by gentleness of Dao are said to be strong. And I feel like th- that is the reason that is, is because like 
if you're following the Tao in the way, like, you don't need to be rigid and you don't need to be, like, firm in your stance. You just need to be, like, just soft and gentle with, like, how you interact with everything. See, I see it as, like, kind of going with that, going back to the go with the flow. Mm-hmm. Being able to adapt mm-hmm. and evolve is is part of the Tao. That's how I also... Exactly. If you're too rigid in your beliefs, you're not following the Tao, right? right? 48A. Those who apply themselves to learning gain something every day. Those who apply themselves to the Tao lose something every day. They go on losing and losing until they reach the point where there is nothing to deem. They deem nothing, and yet there is nothing which they uh, do not do. This is one of the ones that I focus on that kind of challenged what you all were saying about gaining knowledge and stuff, whereas the Tao here is championing losing. What do you think? Do your, does yours say something relatively different? No, no, it says something very different. But I, I also had a, I had a question for that too because I wrote a question in my thing like, what does it mean to like gain knowledge or to rule something? And I, I don't know. I think it's so. I'll read mine just because it's slightly different. Maybe it'll give us some insight. It says, the pursuit of learning results in daily increase. Hearing the way leads to daily decrease, decrease, and again, decrease. Until you reach non-action. Through non-action, no action is left undone. Do you want our translator's rendition? rendition? Sure. Lao Tzu uses the word learning to indicate the kind of artificial knowledge advocated by the Confucianists and others. The knowledge of arbitrary social convention, ceremony, and regulation. Additionally, he uses it in a more general sense to criticize a belief that knowledge of external superficial phenomena will lead to a true understanding of the meaning and purpose of life. People who devote themselves to the acquisition of this kind of knowledge merely fill up their minds with facts and figures that tend to obscure rather than to illuminate. Such knowledge has a degree of usefulness but is no substitute for an understanding based upon the natural Tao. Taoists, on the other hand, try to reduce the amount of mental clutter since it prevents a direct understanding of the natural Tao. I think that's kind of what we were talking about before, like the pursuit of knowledge solely for the sake of the pursuit of knowledge like that obviously is nonsense that's not following the Tao, right yeah i'm gonna read mine real quick it says in in, uh, pursuing Tao, one is enlightened with the true nature and thus diminishes daily one's worldly desires and knowledge Hmm. so i feel like if you just follow the Tao, like like i say just if you follow that sense of flow like that it comes so you don't need to like actively desire to seek it because if you if you are then you might it it might muddy or lose its profoundness yeah i like that like actively seeking the Tao is not the Tao, right Mm -hmm. like you have to go with the flow and like yeah i like that one more for personal training because again if you do too many of these you overwhelm people so one more number 12 The five colors blind people's eyes. The five sounds deafen people's ears. The five tastes numb people's palates. Riding and hunting perturb people's minds. Rare commodities impede people's activities. Because of this, wise instructors favor the belly and not the eye. Hence, they choose the inner and reject the outer. 
That's basically what mine says. Okay, so mm -hmm. we're in relative agreement on translation. Let's talk. What does that mean? Because this is a pretty good one to kind of go out on. This is about what you do yourself before we get into like society and government. Yeah, I mean, they're basically talking about focusing on satisfying your individual needs and desires rather than taking a different lens and following the Tao, right? Kind of. I don't know if that answers anything, but. Uh, um, I think it's pretty much saying like cultivating uh, a true like Taoist virtue within yourself. Um, and I feel like to the way you do that, it, uh, th this was a hard one. I, I had really trouble like kind of like interpreting this one in my mind, but I feel like it's just like. You don't want to, you don't like you reject like outer temptations to cultivate like certain virtues within you that aligns with the Tao. And, and because if you like focus on like these tempting things outside that doesn't really matter in the bigger, greater content context of things, you lose your way. I don't know. I think this has a lot to do with like excess also and consumption, etc. It's. Like mine says, goods that are hard to obtain make a man's progress falter. Yours, I think, use the term commodity or something like that. It's uh, it, To me, this is about, yeah, consumption and excess and finding an equilibrium between what you need and ignoring what you desire. If it's like a surplus desire type thing. That's kind of what I think. But like I kind of saw it as when it says towards the end that, that at least in my, my translation, trust the belly, not the eye. That means trust your gut, not your eye. So what do you really feel? This basically like do you trust Jiminy Cricket, that little conscience in your head, or what like society wants you to trust? That's how I'm interpreting it because everything that we have been conditioned to and mine hear, taste, and see – is socialized. Yeah. And that socialization is the problem. Let yeah. me read the last sentence of mine because he yeah. translates it differently. He says, For these reasons, in ruling, the sage attends to the stomach, not to the eye. Therefore, he rejects the one and adopts the other. Like so that. like the gut, right? This gut feeling and yeah. And when, you know, connecting this to like anarchist philosophy, this goes back to this idea of understanding that we as humans naturally are good and that we are going to want to do good because if we trust our guts and not our socialized constructs, there is a much better chance we can engage in these reciprocal relationships with our fellow humans. It doesn't have to be forced from the top down. We naturally, the Tao would agree that we naturally are this way. And that's the segue I kind of want to go out with because our next episode, Dante's leading the charge with his, his sayings that he thinks um, are attached best to now the modern anarchist philosophy. But before we do that, I have a transition here. My translator actually went out of his way to even say that there might be a possible connection back in uh, the Warring States period. In the introduction to his work, this is what he had to say uh, regarding the Tao Te Ching's teachings on society and government. And again, that's what Dante is going to be focusing on in the, in the next episode. I only took us through like the individual. These, there are various nuances in the Tao Te Ching's teachings on government, which range from advocating full participation in administration to minimalist government and even anarchism along similar principles to those proposed by Proudhon and Kropotkin, and our listeners definitely have heard of those names in our podcast. So um, those are the great 19th century anarchist thinkers. 
However, the overall political message of the Tao Te Ching has two facets. From the language skeptics, we have the idea of Wu Wei, normally translates as non-action. Though this translation is possible, it is unlikely to be the sense in which the Tao Te Ching uses the term, for here again we have a standard technical term used in classical Chinese philosophy. When we try to set up a language-based social program or Tao, we distinguish, categorize, and define what is desirable and what is not desirable, what is good and what is bad. In Chinese usage, Wei Wei means something as good or bad. That is to say, we deem it thus and act on this basis. Read against the background of linguistic skepticism, we can now see that the Tao Te Ching is not saying that sages or rulers should sit around doing nothing as something sometimes implied, but that they should not indulge in deeming behavior. As we have seen, that does not provide a reliable or fair way of organizing government due to its arbitrary nature. I'm going to stop there because the more anarchist philosophy would also argue that there shouldn't be a government organization at all. And there are certain parts of the Tao that would also seem to advocate for that. But that is Dante's thunder, and he's going to give us that in the next episode. So again, stay tuned. Um, we will be now taking what we've learned about Taoism in its more traditional context and applying it to a more modern anarchist context in our next episode. Uh, I don't know that I have anything else. I want to thank Dante for coming today, and I will pre-thank him for when he comes to lead uh, uh, the next episode. I just want to say the thing that I love most about the Tao is that when like when all three of us are giving our interpretations of one of the passages, I think it reveals much more of, about us as individuals than it does about the Tao, which is what I love about it, because it's so open for interpretation that at the second you interpret it, you're saying something about yourself and less than less than you are saying something about the Tao, which is what I love. That is actually really interesting. I like that. Well, and that goes right into the anarchist philosophy. Yeah. That's what yeah. it's about, like individualism within a communal ethic. Yeah. yeah. And the communal ethic being natural or <laughs> the way. Right. <laughs> yeah. You got anything else before you uh we uh we we hit it? No, I just want to say I I love this. I love talking about all of these topics and I just want to thank everybody all y'all for just like both of y'all for inviting me on here. I was I, I listen to it all the time and it was just it's it's gonna be weird when I hear it back. <laughs> I don't know if I'm gonna like it. But yeah. <laughs> All right, I'll take us home, I guess. That does it for this episode of the uh, Revolution and Ideology podcast. You can catch us online, revolutionandideology.com. We're on Twitter at Rev and Ideology. Uh, if you like what we're doing and you would like to support us, you can do that uh, on our Patreon page. Uh, but honestly, the best thing that you can do to support us is just if you like what we're doing, tell someone about it, uh, share it on social media, tell your friends, send them this episode. Uh, and so on. So I just want to thank Dante again for coming on and we'll hear from him in the next episode as well. But yeah, that does it. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. And I'm Dante. Later.